So today's podcast is on an important subject called hypercalcemia um, and is something that requires um, a bit of learning and a bit of knowledge about in order to fully understand this quite common problem. It's a common metabolic problem in newborn and infancy and we're going to talk about it today. So to start off, why is calcium important? Well, it's involved in many processes in the body. It's involved in clotting. It's involved in nerve transmission. It's an important component of the sarcoplasmic reticulum in muscle. It's involved in the integrity of cell membranes, optimum enzyme activity, and bone mineralization. So calcium physiologically, 99% of your body's calcium is found in bone, and the remainder is in your extracellular fluid. Of that, so let's recap, 99% of calcium is in your bone and 1% is in the extracellular fluid. To further talk about it, the 1% that is found in your extracellular fluid, about half of it is in the ionised form. So when you talk about ionised calcium, that's the active form. 10% is as part of phosphate, citrate, sulfate and lactate, and 40% is bound to albumin. So serum calcium is affected, really, from the serum levels of phosphate, magnesium, albumin and bicarbonate, okay? So it's dependent on other things. Clinically, it makes sense to measure these other things if you had someone with a low calcium level, which is very important, okay? So it depends upon the level of other things. So remembering a few key physiological principles will be very important. So what I want to say is with regards to albumin, there's an important factor so the level of ionized calcium is not dependent upon albumin, but derangement in albumin level will change the total calcium level. Remember what we said to recap and give some clinical focus to what I just said. So of that, there's 99% of the total body calcium is in the bone. 1% is found in the extracellular fluid. Of that 1%, remember the rule that we talked about, 50% was ionised, 40% was bound to albumin, and 10% was bound to things like phosphate and lactate. So remember that this ionised form is not bound to albumin. So therefore, albumin deficiency will affect your total calcium level, but not your ionised level, because your ionised level is not that which is bound to albumin. Okay, acid-base abnormalities affect the amount of ionised calcium, okay? So alkalosis increases the amount of albumin-bound calcium 
and decreases the level of ionized calcium, okay? So it increases the amount of albumin-bound calcium and decreases the amount of ionized calcium, okay? So that's important. In metabolic acidosis, the calcium albumin binding is reduced and the level of ionized calcium increases, okay? We'll talk about alkalosis as an important cause of hypocalcemia when we summarize later on. So another thing to mention, something that is frequently seen clinically is magnesium. So magnesium is involved in parathyroid hormone homeostasis. So low magnesium may suppress PTH secretion or cause PTH resistance, okay? So a good thing to measure if someone's calcium is low in an exam question or on the wards is to measure the patient's parathyroid hormone and to measure the level of magnesium in their blood. Magnesium deficiency is a cause of hypocalcemia. Magnesium deficiency is a cause of hypocalcemia in itself. So what keeps the level of calcium in our blood within homeostatic parameters? Well, calcium homeostasis is maintained by hormones and some of the hormones that we'll talk about, I'm gonna talk about four critical ones. Parathyroid hormone that acts to increase your serum calcium. Calcitonin that antagonizes PTH and decreases your serum calcium. Vitamin D that with a synergistic effect with PTH increases serum calcium. And calcium sensing receptors, sometimes called CASR, calcium sensing receptors. Okay. So there are a few of the important things. There's going to be plenty of images in the accompanying PowerPoint about calcium homeostasis, but I thought I'd take a second just to recap. So what does PTH do? Well, PTH increases bone resorption. Okay, very important. And increases your serum calcium level. So PTH increases bone reabsorption and consequently the serum level of your calcium goes up. So that's the first point. Secondly, okay, in the kidneys, what does PTH do? So PTH increases the activity of an enzyme called 1-alpha-hydroxylase, okay? And this is in the proximal tubules of the kidneys. So this increases production of the active form 1,2,5-hydroxyvitamin D from 25-hydroxyvitamin D. So this is an important thing. So 1,2,5-dihydroxyvitamin D has got two hydroxy groups. So the 1 and the 25 denote where these hydroxy groups are. So we know that the difference between 25-hydroxyvitamin D and 1,2,5 is that we've added a hydroxyl group to the first carbon molecule, okay? 
So that is why it's called 1-alpha-hydroxylase, because it hydroxylates the first carbon. So not the 25, because that's already got a hydrox group in, the first one. So we have 1,2,5-hydroxyvitamin D. Okay. So what else does PTH do? Well, PTH increases phosphate excretion, okay, and improves, facilitates, okay, calcium and magnesium reabsorption in the distal tubules, okay? So a classical, if we had to summarize what PTH does, it does a few different things, okay? So PTH increases bone reabsorption and consequently increases your serum calcium levels. When it acts on the kidneys, it increases the activity, potentiates the activity, of 1-alpha-hydroxylase in the proximal tubules of the kidney. What does this do? It increases production of your active form of vitamin D, which is 1-2-5-dihydroxyvitamin D, from 25-hydroxyvitamin D, so it adds a hydroxyl group. It increases phosphate excretion, and it helps magnesium and calcium reabsorption in the distal tubule. The active form of vitamin D that we call 1,2,5-hydroxyvitamin D acts on bones, intestine and parathyroid glands, okay? It's important. It increases the reabsorption of calcium and phosphate from your intestine and decreases the renal excretion of these ions, okay? Vitamin D inhibits PTH secretion by the parathyroid glands. Okay, what I've just said is that vitamin D, okay, the active form of vitamin D, increases intestinal absorption of calcium and phosphate ions, okay, and decreases renal excretion. This is the explanation, and we'll talk about it again later, why in hypoparathyroidism, compared to vitamin D deficiency, they look relatively similar, but what happens to the phosphate levels differs, okay? So when we're talking about hypoparathyroidism and vitamin D deficiency, some of the things are in common with each other, but a few of the things are different, okay? And what we find is in vitamin D deficiency, calcium goes down and phosphate goes down, okay? And in hypoparathyroidism, calcium goes down and phosphate goes up. So if someone has got low calcium and low phosphate, suspect vitamin D deficiency. If their calcium is low and their phosphate is high, Think about, amongst other differential diagnoses, hypoparathyroidism. So without even having a serum PTH, if calcium's low and phosphate's low, think vitamin D deficiency. If calcium is low and phosphate's high, think hypoparathyroidism. Because PTH works differently on calcium and phosphate than vitamin D does. It's easy to group them together but they act differently. So calcitonin, the main 
antagonist of PTH, reduces bone reabsorption, so works oppositely to PTH. It promotes calcium deposition in the bone, therefore taken out of the blood, and decreases serum calcium level, okay? Calcitonin increases your renal excretion of calcium and phosphate and decreases the reabsorption. So works in a very different way to PTH. So I could just, when I was talking about the physiology of calcium, I could be talking about adults or children or neonates. I could be talking about either because really the principles are, are really the same. I'm going to delve now because I marketed this as hypocalcemia in infancy and in neonates. What I'm going to talk about now is fetal and neonatal calcium homeostasis. So kind of look at maybe some differences or some extra layers of knowledge that we need to know about fetal and neonatal calcium homeostasis. So calcium actually interesting is transferred from the mother's circulation to the fetal circulation by active transport from the placenta in the last trimester. So actually calcium is being transferred from mum to fetus in the last trimester of pregnancy. So the calcium concentration is higher in cord blood than in maternal blood at the point of delivery, which makes sense based upon what we've just said. Okay. Very interestingly, calcium can be transported from the maternal circulation to the fetus, but PTH and calcitonin can't. So calcium can get across the placental barrier, but PTH and calcitonin can't, okay? The main regulator, okay, of calcium balance of this positive transfer from mum to fetus is parathyroid hormone related peptide, normally called PTHRP. PTHRP, parathyroid hormone related peptide, is the main regulator. Okay. So the postpartum level in a newborn of calcium is regulated by a few things. So it depends on the PTH secretion, dietary calcium intake, renal calcium reabsorption, how much calcium you've got stored in your skeleton and the vitamin D status, okay? If we think physiologically, after the infant is detached from the placenta in the postpartum period after birth, serum total calcium and ionized calcium drop. And they drop normally one to two days after birth. Phosphate levels go up, okay? So the pace and amount of such decrease are inversely related to gestational age, okay? The decreased level of calcium is associated with a few things. Hyperparathyroidism, so the parathyroid glands aren't working as well as they should be. And then non-responsiveness of target organs to PTH. Just because PTH is being secreted by the parathyroid glands doesn't mean that the target organs, you know, we talked earlier on 
for example, about the kidneys. The PTH works onto the distal tubules of the kidneys. Yeah. And we talked about other organs that PTH works on. If it doesn't work on those organs, okay, if there's unresponsiveness, then that's going to be an issue. If you've got any disorders of vitamin D metabolism, that will affect your sim calcium levels. High levels of phosphate or low levels of magnesium in the blood are all things that will impact on your serum calcium level. So PTH secretion, even though we said parathyroid hormone can't move across the placenta, it increases in the first 48 hours of life. So when they're detached from the placenta, those first 48 hours after birth, PTH goes up. Okay, so if PTH secretion goes up, your intestinal absorption of calcium and phosphate improve, your renal reabsorption of calcium and your renal excretion of phosphate all improve if your PTH goes up. So this explains why your serum calcium levels start increasing and phosphate levels start decreasing over the next few weeks. So that's very important. And actually, within those first four weeks, there are changes with how you become better at absorbing calcium and how you become better at reabsorbing from your kidneys, from those, um, from those, pro uh, from those distal tubules. So that's what we've talked about. So we talked broadly about some of the key hormones some of the key things that are involved in calcium homeostasis. And now we're beginning to talk more specifically about what causes it. So hypocalcemia is defined as a total serum calcium of less than two in neonates or an ionized calcium less than 1.1, okay? This we use a slightly lower cutoff if they're born extremely low birth weight. So the main clinical symptoms of hypocalcemia include apnea, cyanosis, poor feeding, uh, vomiting, tachycardia, heart failure. You can get prolongation of the QT interval, so hypocalcemia is an important cause of prolonged QT. Irritability, tremor, laryngospasm, kind of hypocalcemic tetany jerking and twitching episodes, and can actually result in seizing. Early onset neonatal hypercalcemia, however, is mostly asymptomatic. So a very good way of looking at it is we will define early onset hypercalcemia presents within the first three days, late onset happens after the first three days. So what causes early onset hypercalcemia? Okay, so... Early onset hypocalcemia is caused by an increased reduction in the serum calcium that physiologically occurs within the first three days in newborns and delayed PTH secretion. A normal response to hypocalcemia is PTH secretion. If this isn't fully developed, you will get hypocalcemia and there won't be the compensatory increase in PTH. Early onset neonatal 
hypocalcium is more common in preterm infants because they haven't yet developed that PTH secretion or response to um, PTH from the target tissues. So it's more common in infants with interuterine growth restriction. Infants with prenatal or perinatal asphyxia and infants of diabetic mothers. We'll talk about physiologically why that happens. So one third of preterm infants and most of those that are very low birth weight will have low serum calciums in the first two days of life. Why does this happen? Well, what we've talked about already will help us answer this question. So if you have a premature infant, you will get early discontinuation of that calcium transfer that happens by active transport from the mum to the fetus. Early discontinuation of that is one cause. You can get the exaggerated decrease in serum calcium that physiologically happens anyway. And one of the potential reasons is that your target organs are less responsive to PTH and your calcitonin levels might be higher than normal. The main causes of hypocalcemia in an infant that has got asphyxia include, with asphyxia, you often get problems with perfusing tissues. If you don't perfuse tissues, you get cell death. What the cells contain, phosphate, okay? Phosphate is an important component of DNA. So when cells die and release their intracellular contents, phosphate goes up. Phosphate can go up for other reasons, in other problems. Um, normally, a condition that tends to affect sometimes older children, mostly adults, are poorly differentiated lymphomas um, with a big tumour burden. You can get tumour lysis syndrome, and that is, again, cells splitting open and releasing their phosphate into the circulation, um, which is important. So these patients with asphyxia, again, calcitonin production goes up, renal failure, and when you've got renal failure, you can have decreased PTH secretion. So if you are not perfusing your organs properly in asphyxia, you're going to get cellular damage, you can get renal failure. And all of these things are important because PTH acts on the kidney. So if you've got renal failure, it stands to reason that hypocalcemia can result. Okay. So hypocalcemia is a known phenomenon in the infants of a diabetic mother. Okay. The main cause of low calcium that we talked about earlier on in infants of diabetic mothers is actually the low magnesium. Okay. So infants of diabetic mothers, um, because of osmotic diuresis and a few other suggested causes, they tend to have an increased urinary excretion of magnesium during pregnancy, normally because of osmotic diuresis. So low levels of magnesium causes hypoparathyroidism in the infant. Okay. The increased maternal calcium due to maternal hyperparathyroidism passes to the infant through the placenta and suppresses fetal PTH synthesis. Okay. 
PGH suppression is very important in this case. So remember, okay, the mum has got low magnesium. The mum compensates by increasing PTH levels. Okay. Yeah. This increased PTH levels is important because the calcium goes up and this calcium load passes through the placenta and suppresses PTH synthesis. Okay. So therefore, if you've got a patient with early onset neonatal hypercalcemia presenting within the first three days of life, the maternal levels of calcium and PTH should be measured as well. Okay. So, late onset hypocalcemia. So late onset hypocalcemia, which is usually a, a usually symptomatic compared to the asymptomatic if it's less than three days, occurs after the first three days, 72 hours, and generally by the end of the first week. Most common causes of late onset are excessive phosphate intake in feeds or feeding formulas, hypermagnesemia, hyperparathyroidism and vitamin D deficiency. Feeding with cow milk rather than mother's milk may cause hyperphosphatemia leading to hypocalcemia. Low levels of magnesium can cause impaired PTH secretion and reduced response to peripheral tissues to PTH. So if a neonate is deficient of vitamin D, there are a few reasons. It can be associated with maternal deficiency of vitamin D. It can be malabsorption. It can be renal failure, because remember that hydroxylation happens in the kidney, and hepatobiliary disease. So the first big take-home message I want to say today is in vitamin D deficiency, hypocalcemia is usually accompanied by hypophosphatemia. If you've got low calcium with a high phosphate, you should suspect hypoparathyroidism. Okay. Hypoparathyroidism that we've just talked about would give you a low calcium and a high phosphate. Okay, low calcium and high phosphate. Because what does PTH do? It leads to um, calcium in the serum going up and phosphate going down. So if you've got hypoparathyroidism, the opposite will happen. Your calcium will go down and your phosphate will go up. Primary hypoparathyroidism can be isolated or associated with syndromes such as DeGeorge syndrome that there's a separate podcast on. You can get mutations of the calcium sensing receptors. Okay. So there are problems with um, the channels in your kidneys. Okay. The most common conditions affecting syndromic primary hyperparathyroidism is the George syndrome, which is covered in another podcast, but causes hypoplasia of the parathyroid glands, hypoplasia of the thymus with association with congenital heart disease and facial anomaly, okay? So PTH resistance can happen, okay? Which is your pseudo-hypoparathyroidism, 
which is very important. So we've kind of talked about um, the important things. And I'm not going to bog down, bog you down with the treatment because essentially it's to give calcium. A few of the things you might think if someone's got hypocalcemia. So what might we do? So detailed history, looking at conditions that can cause your calcium to be low, such as low birth weight, asphyxia, neonatal sepsis, etc. They're all really important. Okay, you can look at. Um, doing calcium, ALP, magnesium, albumin and creatinine. You can measure your vitamin D levels, uh, which again is important when looking at your differential diagnoses. And that's basically the main things. You can look at knee x-ray if you're thinking for rickets. ECG, you can look for a prolonged QTC. Um, can get ventricular arrhythmias. You can look at T cell function if you think of de George syndrome. And essentially the management is to give calcium. Probably the most important thing I'm going to talk about now is specifically with exam questions. So when you're stuck in an exam and you get a question about someone with a low calcium level. So I'm going to talk about the differential diagnosis of hypercalcemia in the last bit of this podcast. And I'm going to talk about and obviously include lots of images in the PowerPoint, but I'm going to talk about how would you begin to filter the many possibilities of a low calcium. So the first patient, I'm not going to tell you the age or give anything away, but someone has got a low serum calcium with a normal ionized serum calcium, a normal serum phosphate and a normal serum PTH. So what might you think in this situation? Well, in this situation, if your serum calcium is decreased, your ionized calcium is normal, your phosphate is normal, and your PTH is normal, what probably the diagnosis is, is a low level of albumin. Because if your calcium is low, but your ionized calcium that makes up 50% of the calcium in your extracellular fluid. If that's normal, then we're looking at probably low albumin because remember of that calcium in your extracellular fluid, 50% is ionized in the active form, 40% is in albumin. So therefore, if your ionized calcium is normal and your serum calcium is decreased, then this is a problem with albumin. So low levels of albumin, so hypoalbuminemia. Serum calcium will be low, ionized calcium will be normal, phosphate will be normal, and PTH will be normal as well. The second thing is we're gonna talk about if someone had an alkalosis. So remember what we said, that when we talk of alkalosis, alkalosis, decreases your ionized calcium and increases the albumin bound calcium. So actually a cause of, um, for example, your ionized calcium, which is an important thing to look at, ionized calcium when you're looking at serum calcium. If your ionized calcium went down, what would you be thinking? Okay. So if your, cal if your serum calcium was normal, 
and your ionized calcium was low, you would be thinking potentially an alkalosis, okay? So remember, pH affects your ionized calcium. So if your ionized calcium goes down, you get that an alkalosis. If your ionized calcium goes up, you get that an acidosis. So alkalosis can be as a result of hyperventilation. So if you hyperventilate, that is a respiratory alkalosis, okay? Because you remove CO2 because your minute ventilation goes up. If you're breathing faster, you remove more CO2 and therefore you become alkalotic. Metabolic-wise, something like Conn syndrome. So Conn syndrome is a um, massively unreported cause of hypertension in adults. So Conn syndrome is normally due to an aldosterone-secreting adenoma. And what happens? Well, in Conn syndrome, you produce lots of aldosterone. The normal physiological trigger for aldosterone is volume depletion that leads to contraction of your extracellular volume and your aldosterone will go up. Aldosterone leads to salt or sodium retention by the kidneys and leads to increased bicarbonate resorption and hydrogen ion excretion. So all of that process, if you're excreting acid, you'll become alkalotic. If you're losing hydrogen ions in your kidneys, so we'll go through that again, salt retention, leads to bicarbonate reabsorption and, and hydrogen ion excretion. If you excrete your hydrogen ions, what is that going to do? If you excrete hydrogen ions, you become alkalotic because you're losing your acid. Three things in an SBA questions that might make you think Conn syndrome. Hypertension, which is quite an important one. Okay, hypertension hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. So hypertension because aldosterone leads to salt retention by the kidneys, water reabsorption, increased circulating blood volume, increased blood pressure. The second thing, aldosterone leads to salt retention, sodium retention by the kidneys, but potassium excretion. Potassium excretion leads to hypokalemia. The third thing we've talked about is metabolic alkalosis because aldosterone leads to salt retention by the kidneys, bicarbonate reabsorption and hydrogen ion excretion. You're getting rid of your hydrogen ions, you become more alkalotic. So that's potentially the second thing that can cause hypercalcemia. We're then going to take two of these together. So if you had vitamin D deficiency, what would happen to your calcium, phosphate and PTH? Okay, maybe pause the podcast where you want to answer. So in vitamin D deficiency, we've talked about this already, your calcium goes down, your phosphate goes down, and your PTH goes up. Remember, calcium down, phosphate down, PTH goes up, okay? PTH goes up to compensate for your calcium being low, okay? Compensates for your calcium being low. We compare this with hypoparathyroidism 
where your calcium will go down, your phosphate will go up, and your PTH will go down, okay? This hyperparathyroidism is really easy to understand when you realize what PTH does. So PTH leads to your calcium going up and your phosphate going down, okay? Leads to you kicking phosphate out of your body and reabsorbing calcium. So if your PTH is low in hyperparathyroidism, then your serum phosphate will go up and your calcium will go down. So it'd be an exact reverse. Whatever the function of PTH is, if you're not producing enough of it, the calcium and the phosphate will go in the opposite direction. So PTH causes calcium to go up and phosphate to go down. Hyperparathyroidism leads to calcium going down and phosphate going up. Easy, okay? And because you've got hypoparathyroidism, your PTH will be low. Hypo, low, parathyroidism, parathyroid hormone. So your PTH will be low. Vitamin D deficiency is different. Calcium's low, phosphate's high, and you get a compensatory rise in PTH. Chronic renal failure, okay? Chronic renal failure, problems with the kidneys can lead to impaired hydroxylation from 25 to 125, okay, hydroxyvitamin D, from 25 to 125. So what does that mean? Well, actually, what happens in chronic renal failure is that your phosphate goes up, you can't renally clear your phosphate, and you secrete PTH, but often then the kidneys will be unresponsive to PTH. So the calcium remains low and the, P and the phosphate remains high and they lose sensitivity um, to PTH. You lose PTH responsiveness. Pseudo-hyperparathyroidism is always something that comes up in exams. So I just want to take some time to distinguish it from hyperparathyroidism. So in hyperparathyroidism, you don't produce enough PTH. Simple, straightforward, end of it. Hyperparathyroidism, you don't produce enough PTH. Pseudo-hyperparathyroidism is when you have a problem with PTH responsiveness, okay? So it's when your target organs are resistant to PTH. That's how I could summarize pseudo-hyperparathyroidism in one sentence. Lots of conditions that can cause it. Um, there's many with very strange names. Um, the one that I always remember is the Albright hereditary osteodystrophy. That's one that can be quite good. These are characterized by having high phosphate, low calcium, high PTH. So why is this pseudo hypoparathyroidism? Because calcium is low and phosphate high, which is exactly what happens in hypoparathyroidism. But why is it pseudo? Because your PTH is high, not low. That's the only difference between hypoparathyroidism and pseudo hypoparathyroidism. So your PTH is high in pseudo and low in hyperparathyroidism. So your target tissues lack responsiveness to PTH. So biochemically will be almost as if you haven't produced PTH at all. The giveaway in SBA questions is in pseudo, your PTH is high because it's not a problem PTH production. It's a problem with sensitivity of peripheral tissues to PTH. Okay. The final thing to say is low levels of magnesium, okay? Low levels of magnesium 
can also lead to low levels of calcium. There's no hard and fast rules of it. Your phosphate can alter because you can get a functional hypoparathyroidism with low magnesium. But it's just very important to always check magnesium in patients with low calcium levels. So I will upload the PowerPoint today if there's any questions about anything that we've covered. I think the main thing for exams for hypercalcemia is to look at the, some of the tables that I've included in the PowerPoint, look through them and be able to rationalise why each one is the way that it is. If you want to know why calcium goes up, it goes down in acute pancreatitis, which is included in some of the tables, it is a process called saponification and therefore might be worth a Google. But for today's podcast, um, we've covered why hypercalcium is important, looked at some of the relevant physiology. And the best way to learn the physiology is to look through some of the diagrams included in the PowerPoint.